Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. We are so happy that you have decided to join us. Hopefully, you will find the next few minutes challenging and refreshing as we consider together how God is asking us to respond to His grace. If you are listening because you are unable to join us at our physical location, thank you for keeping in step with us, and we will look forward to seeing you in person next Sunday. If you are joining us from outside of Anchorage, then please drop us a line and let us know where you are listening in from. We would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you are exploring faith for the first time or just trying to figure out what Awaken is about, please don't hesitate to drop us a line and introduce yourself. We welcome any question you might have about life, the Christian faith, or Awaken Church. May God be with you as you listen. Very good. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We have a pretty cool thing. Henry and Addie, you guys want to come on up? They're up for it. As a church, we have been trying to memorize Exodus 14, 13, and 14. And I think you guys have memorized it. Is that correct? You guys want to say it together? Yep. Go for it. But I just tell the people, don't be afraid. Exodus 13, 13, 13 and 14. 13, 13, 14. Moses told people, don't be afraid. Just stand still while the Lord rescues you today. The ships rescue you today, and never be seen again. And I himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. That is so awesome. <laughs> well, I said last week, I didn't think it could get any better. And I'm not going to make any judgment calls. I'm just going to leave that to you. But, you know, the challenge is out there. Thank you, Henry, and thank you, Addie. That is just awesome. It might get better. <laughs> oh, how incredible. Well, we have uh, been uh, working through uh, the themes of the book of Exodus. If you are so inspired today after hearing the sermon that you would like to go back and review where we have been, those are all available to you online. And it would be just a fantastic personal ego boost if you would go back through and listen to all those and just tell me how impactful they were uh, on your life. So uh, we're gonna start uh, with just a quick word of prayer. And the idea here is uh, that you would prepare your heart uh, to hear from God. I'm gonna be speaking, uh, but the goal is that you would hear uh, from God as uh, uh, we're reading passages from uh, the book of Exodus and uh, talking about uh, the things that come up. So if you'll please uh, just take a moment and join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts together. So, uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for giving us uh, your truth in the freedom that comes from living out your truth. We pray, Lord, that as we hear it today, uh, that you would give us the strength and the courage to install it into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, you've probably gotten to the law, 
which is what we're going to talk about today, and you've probably lost enthusiasm because we generally like stories, and so uh, we read through the stories pretty good, we stay pretty interested, but then when it gets into the law in the Old Testament, we say to ourselves, I'm not an attorney, I don't even want to be associated with an attorney, and so I am not reading the law in the Old Testament. We get lost. And then there, on top of that, if you try to, uh, you know, make it through, force yourself to read through, it can be very difficult and confusing. And so hopefully this morning, I'm here to help. If you're thinking, oh no, I showed up on the worst Sunday ever. We're going to go over Old Testament law today. You could be right. So, we're going to start with Exodus 22 and verses 2 and 3. We're not going to go through the entire law because it is exhaustive, especially if we're going to try to do it all in one Sunday morning, but we're going to get some snippets of it this morning and talk about the spirit of the law, God's heart behind the law. So, if a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed In the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. That seems good, doesn't it? If you're defending your home. Uh, By the way, most of our laws in our country are based on these laws that God established for at least 4,000 years ago. So there is some interest just based on that. So in our day... If somebody breaks into your house and you, in the process of defending your home, kill the offender, you will not be held liable. That's generally how that goes in our, in our day and age. But it goes on to say, but if it happens in daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. This is a little bit different than our law. So this begins to reveal something of the spirit behind the law that God Gave. Let's read on. A thief who is caught must pay in full for everything he stole. If he cannot pay, he must be sold as a slave to pay for his theft. So, there's some things you might not be catching as, as you read through this. You might not be catching the fact that the intent of the law here is to do two things. Number one, redeem the criminal. Whenever possible, redeem the criminal. So if this happens in the daylight, we're not gonna kill the guy. We're just gonna let him go and let the due process of law take place. And we're gonna see that he is brought before the elders and the elders are gonna lay down the judgment that says he needs to pay for his sins. He needs to compensate the owner for the things that he stole. And that is a redemptive process, right? We all know when, we've, when we do something wrong that the consequence is actually a redemptive process, right? It, it brings maturity. It helps us understand the error of our ways. It is a redemptive process. We are formed by the consequences that we go through. And so that's the first thing to catch here about the spirit of the law and really the spirit of the law giver, the heart of God, which is mostly what we'll be talking about today, even though we're going to get into some of the details of the law. 
But then there is this thing about compensating the owner. And so there's something here about victims being honored. How many of you love when people steal your stuff? Maybe you've been the victim of some crime at some point. And one of the things that God prescribes is that that victim needs to be honored, needs to be compensated, needs to be taken care of. And so there is this um, perfect balance between redeeming the criminal, the perpetrator, whenever possible, and honoring the victim. This is the heart of God throughout the law. But then there is this part. If he cannot pay, he must be sold as a slave to pay for his theft. How do you feel about that? Like on a scale of one to 10, how many of you would raise your hands for a 10, like I feel 100% good about God telling people to sell people into slavery? 100% good. Okay, all right. Three potentially heartless people raise their hands. But let's see if, let's see if they are heartless. Back in these days, there wasn't really like a, a prison system. Now, in larger cities, there would be a, a prison, but this is a law for Israel as they are establishing a, a new country. There's, there's not necessarily a prison, a prison system. And if somebody needs to pay off a debt... They don't just go and like apply for jobs at different places of businesses around to try to work off their debt. The way that you worked off a debt in this culture was you became a slave to somebody. And we have a really negative connotation to the word slave because in our context, the most recent slavery that we've been exposed to is a very horrible type of slavery where people were kidnapped from one country and brought and were forced to labor in another country and were never offered their freedom. That kind of slavery is explicitly ruled out by God and the law. So this is a different kind of slavery that God is setting up here, not setting up, that's the wrong way to say it, that God is utilizing in this situation. This is equivalent to saying this person needs to be forced to take a job with somebody and work their debt off. So that's my first attempt at getting you to be more comfortable with slavery in Old Testament terms. I think as, you, as we go along, you'll see that these three people who raise their hands are not actually that cold-hearted. So, let me give you another example. Exodus 21, uh, starting in verse 28. If you're thinking the whole sermon is gonna be about slavery and you're not really interested in slavery, uh, just hold on. We'll get to some good stuff. So just work, work with me through some of these things. 
Verse 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned and its flesh may not be eaten. In such a case, however, the owner will not be held liable. Everybody agree with that? Random ox kills a random person. The owner should not be held liable, okay? But suppose the ox had a reputation for goring and the owner had been informed but failed to keep it under control. This is a different situation. If the ox then kills someone, it must be stoned and the owner must also be put to death. Oh, wow. We just went to some really intense liability measures, didn't we? Uh, This oxen has gored three people before and you have done nothing about it. You are now fully responsible for what happened. Does that sound familiar? We have a lot of liabilities, law, liability laws like this as well. Uh, it goes on. However, the dead person's relatives may accept payment to compensate for the loss of life. The owner of the ox may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. So it's possible that we could turn this into a civil suit and work this out in the civil courts. Interesting. I think probably more interesting if you are a lawyer, but interesting for us nonetheless. The same regulation applies if the ox gores a boy or a girl. We're all on board so far, right? Here's where maybe it gets uh, tough for us. But if the ox gores a slave, either male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave's owner 30 silver coins and the ox must be stoned. Wow. So now, slaves aren't real people. They're just worth 30 silver coins. That's one way to read that. And it's possible to arrive at the conclusion that God doesn't care about slaves. God doesn't care about, let me use a different word that's really a more accurate Translation of cultures. God doesn't care about employees because slaves were much more employees than they were slaves in terms of our image of slaves. Well, God's doing a couple of things here. One is he is making sure that slaves have a value. 30 silver coins was not, it was not nothing, which is not good grammar. But It was a significant amount of money. And so he is establishing a real value for the human life of a slave. At the same time, he is also protecting slave owners or masters, or a better word in our context would be employers. He is protecting employers from being over-liable. We have something in our country called an LLC. That's called a limited liability corporation for this same reason. So that an employer can reasonably employ employees without losing their entire lives, their entire livelihood because of something an employee does. There is some level of liability, but not ultimate 
liability. So I don't know if you're catching this or not, but God is really good at balancing things well, really good at making things perfectly fair, even though they may seem unequal from time to time. So to get an idea of the master-slave relationship in these days, let me give you some examples. Maybe some of you remember that Abraham, before he had a son, Isaac, had a plan to give all of his wealth, all of his possessions, to give his inheritance to his lead slave, Eleazar. And so there's a significant relationship that would have happened between a slave and his master, just as in our day, there's a significant relationship that happens between an employee and their employer. Remember also that Abraham sends Eleazar to find a wife for Isaac. That is an incredibly high level of trust and responsibility. Um, Jacob goes and puts himself in slavery to Laban, right? He is running from Esau. He is looking for a place of refuge and he goes to Laban and Laban gets into a master-slave contract relationship with Jacob. So that is much more the kind of slavery that we're talking about when God says this criminal who can't pay his debts should be sold into slavery. There's actually sort of like a, a bill of rights for slaves given to us, for employees given to us in the Old Testament. It's really the first time there was like an employee protection act was in the Old Testament law. Um, Exodus 21, here's an example. Exodus 21, starting in verse four. Um, This, by the way, is under a section called fair treatment for slaves. If a master... Uh, gave him, this slave, gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year. Uh, By the way, God built in a system. You could only be a slave for a maximum of six years. And then you had your freedom. There was a maximum to the level of debt that you could be in. How cool would that be? If we really studied this slave system, we might actually be in favor of it over our own because some people are in debt a debt that will take 20 years to pay off. How cool would it be if the maximum amount of debt you could get into was six years of wages? While everything's being taken care of for you, by the way, the master is responsible for your food, for your housing, for your physical well-being. Verse four, if a master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, the master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. So... God sets up a system that is so good for slaves. In those days, for a slave master to offer his slave or his employee 
a wife, right, to pay the bride price for this slave was a very generous thing. It would be like uh, matching 401k and four weeks of vacation and a, a company automobile, automobile these days. Like this would have been a major perk. And if at the end of six years, this slave sees that I have got a really good situation here. My master is treating me very well. I'm, I'm living the high life here. I'm in, I'm, I'm in all the way. To give you some New Testament examples, uh, Peter writes that he is an apostle and slave of Jesus Christ. Now, slavery doesn't always work out well, right? I'm not trying to get you to think that we should become a slave and master economy, right? We, we left feudalism quite a while ago. So that's not what I'm trying to convince you of. I'm trying to help us understand that the purpose, the spirit of the law was God finding the best way for people to operate within their particular culture, within the cultural dynamics that were set in place. So there are lots of times where people might read a particular passage in the Old Testament and say, look at what a horrible God is. And Christians and Jewish people are heavily criticized for some of these things. The reason there's criticism is twofold. One, because people just don't understand the heart and the intent of God because their study of the scriptures is wrong. Their understanding of the historical context and culture is wrong. The second reason is they don't understand the heart of God. All they see are the consequences and people don't tend to react well to consequences. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Think about in your own life. You've done something and you've been found out or somehow there's been some failure on your part and then there are these consequences. How many of you just, man, you rally in the morning? Like, yes, I get to deal with consequences today. This is incredibly exciting. Those things I did wrong, now I've got a chance to work them off. No, it's one of the most difficult things we go through dealing with the consequences. You know, when we were children, our parents told us we were grounded for a certain number of days or we had to do these chores or do this or do that. I mean, how many of us as children just did that joyfully, right? And we don't change as adults. We don't like consequences. And so when people read about the fact that God is a God of consequences because he's the only one who is willing to perfectly enforce consequences? Well, people don't like that. They don't understand the heart of God. So let's look at that. Um, by the way, if you're ever reading through Exodus, Leviticus, whatever, and you come across something and you just say, man, this is so strange. I need an answer. You can email me, call me. My card's out there on the counter. Um, 
ask because there's a lot of strange stuff in there. But there are some incredible answers that lead us to the heart of God. Let me give you a glimpse into the heart of God. Exodus 19, 11 through 13. This is God preparing the people of Israel to receive the law, to receive um, the covenant that he is asking them to enter into, to receive the way of life that he is asking them to live in order to honor him so that he can honor them. Um, Be sure they're ready on the third day. God is gonna present the law. He's gonna speak the law. Be sure that they're ready on the third day for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up to the mountain. There's this incredible intensity with God. And this is something that scares people. This is something that causes people to try to keep their distance uh, from God. But Moses understands uh, the heart behind God's intensity. And so in verse 14, it says, so Moses went down to the people, he consecrated them for worship and to wash their clothes. He told them, get ready for the third day Um, get ready for the third day and until then um, abstain from having sexual intercourse. This is weird. Right? And sometimes when you're reading the Bible you need to stop and just say that's really weird. Uh, What is going on? So in all of the surrounding cultures worship of pagan gods involved all kinds of different forms of sexual immorality. And God is calling his people to be different. God is calling his people to be a unique people. Obviously, he doesn't have a problem with sexual relations. His first command is be fruitful and multiply. God is all about sex. He made sex. He wants us to enjoy it. But he doesn't want it to be involved in worship. Uh, another example of this is uh, Exodus twenty twenty six. He's telling the priest, don't build an altar that requires steps because then somebody might be able to look up under your robe and see your nakedness. Again, weird, very detailed. But God is intense about some of these things because he wants people's worship to be pure and, un, pure and unhindered by things in the culture. Why is God so intense? Moses in Exodus 20 verse 19 
shows his understanding of the heart of God. It says, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. So God pulls all the people around Mount Sinai and from the mountain he shouts the 10 commandments. And that experience is sort of awful, tremendously awful for the people of Israel. Awful in in the sense that they were in awe, but in this very scared way, God was too impressive for them. And so they asked Moses, is there any chance we cannot have another one of these meetings? Some of the songs we sing, we sing about a desire to be in the presence of God. But that's not the way the people of Israel were reacting at all. No, we don't wanna do that again. That was way too much for us. Our spiritual, that was spiritual sensory overload. Never again, please. This is Moses' response. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. Moses is trying to, under, trying to help them understand why God did this in, in such an awesome and fear-evoking way. Because his goal is that they would not sin, that they would, not that he's keeping them from pleasure, but that they would live in the best possible way. And so he's trying to put the fear of God into them so that they will be different from culture, so that they will obey his statutes, so that they will understand what freedom looks like. And then I think we get one of the coolest pieces in scripture uh, that I've never heard a sermon on. Um, But it's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, in Exodus 24, starting in verse uh, nine, there is, uh, there's this interaction between Moses and the people and God. God lays out his covenant. If you wanna be my people, then this is the way I want you to live. I want you to treat your employees fairly. For example, I want you to, you know, all the law. And the people say, okay, we're in. We'll do it. We'll follow your commands. We will enter into this covenant with you. And then this is what happens. Starting in verse nine. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And through the noble, or and though the nobles, I can't read, and though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Maybe you've heard of the Last Supper. Maybe you've seen a famous painting. 
Well, this, I think, is the first supper. Um, this is an absolutely incredible moment. God is saying, this is what it looks like to be in covenant with me. It looks like us fellowshipping together. It looks like us all being at a table together. It looks like us celebrating in the most grand of styles and feasting together. It looks like us being intimate with each other over a meal, knowing each other fully, enjoying each other's presence completely. I'm thinking that that had to be one of the most incredible meals ever eaten in the presence of God. Jesus, of course, shares a significant meal with his disciples. And at that meal, he explains that the purpose of that meal was to establish a meal for you and I to eat on a regular basis. And so we take communion regularly as a Christian church, not just our church, but every Christian everywhere throughout the world. We take that meal regularly. And that meal points to the final, ultimate meal, the feast that we will share with God in heaven in his presence. And so we get this incredible glimpse, this picture of the heart of God. It is to be in fellowship with us. Uh, I'm going to read a passage from 1 John, the first four verses. And here we see the heart of the Father. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life, Jesus. This one who is life itself has, or was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard what we have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. So wherever you are at in life, whatever things you are struggling with, whatever difficulties uh, you are facing, know that it is the heart of the Father to be in fellowship with you. And all that he is doing in the world and in your life is to help us understand his desire to be in fellowship with us. Please join me in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us enter in, that you would help us to trust your heart when things are confusing, that you would help us know your heart even in the midst of consequences, difficulties, 
to know that when we can't see you or when we can't feel you, you are working. You are working steadily on our behalf. And that one day we will be in your presence, fellowshipping with you. Father, we ask that you would give us just glimpse after glimpse after glimpse in our own lives of this fellowship with you. Because we know that when we are in your presence, the world fades away. When we are in your presence, victory is at hand. When we are in your presence, there is healing, there is strength, there is encouragement. So Father, help us come to the table. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you guys would please stand. Uh, from First Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. All right, well, thank you guys. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next week, if not before. Thank you again for listening. It is a joy to be able to share God's truth with you. Hopefully you found this teaching helpful to your understanding of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in today's world, and hopefully you are inspired to take a further step of faith. Please let us know how we can be praying for you as you continue your journey. If you live in the Anchorage area, you are welcome to join us any Sunday. And we have an Awaken 101 event every six weeks, and this is also a great way to find out more about our church. Please sign up for that event by going to the events tab at our website, awakenalaska.com, and looking for Awaken 101. Feel free to share this podcast with your friends, and we will see you next week.